Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Law Talks. In this episode, Ellie is joined by Alice Lewis, Head of Legal and Regulation at the Rugby Football Union. We gain a direct insight into life as an in-house counsel, as well as learning all about what sports law entails. So what route did you take into law? And what inspired you to make the change from media and entertainment law to sports law? Yeah, really good question. So I actually didn't do law at A-level or anything like that. Um, so my A-levels were were language-based actually, so Italian French, Italian French, and then I did history as well. So not law-related at all. Um, and then actually when I went to university, I didn't do a law degree either. Um, and um, and this is no judgment on law degrees at all, but my mum and dad have both done one um, way back when, and they did say that law degrees can be a little bit dry, so um, if you wanted to do something else, you could, and then you could always come back and do like the GDL, I think it's still called that, I'm not quite sure. Um, and actually that's what I did. Um, I had quite... I guess a good good base of languages so I went to do Italian French and modern European studies at university so again not really legal orientated at all although with that European studies there were um, there were some modules on the European Union and European law and also some some there was quite a bit of philosophy within that in and around sort of principles of natural justice and all that sort of thing so actually from a principles perspective quite a good grounding um, but again, at that, at that, at that point, I, I wasn't, I guess I was always interested in the world of the law, but I wasn't sure 
to what extent and what exactly I was interested in. Um, so I wasn't yet ready, I guess, to be committed to sort of three, four year law degree. Um, and then after, after uni, I actually um, did, in, I did contemplate doing um, the graduate diploma in law, uh, but decided that I wasn't quite ready for another few years of studying. Um, I did do a four year law degree, a, a four year degree. So um, I'd already felt I had, I just needed a break from studying and revising. Um, so I actually worked for two years after finishing uni. And I had a, a whole range of jobs. I mean, from the, from the more mundane to, you know, I was literally working in an internet cafe um, back when they existed. I'm not sure they still exist. Um, and, you know, checking people in and out and applying for jobs on, on, a la on the computer whilst I was there. It was back in the day when I make myself sound really old now, but I didn't, I didn't have my own computer uh, laptop. Um, and <laughs> this was probably only in 2002. So, which that is a long time ago, but yeah, would you believe that I didn't have my own laptop back then? Um, hence why I was in, I thought uh, working in an internet cafe was quite a good idea to get access to a computer sort of 24 seven. Um, and, and yeah, and then, so I, I worked on a few jobs, a few jobs there and then, um, including bar work, cafe work, that sort of thing. And I then eventually, um, just on a university notice board, got a job with a film company. Again, just a runaround assistant, um, bit of diary management, reading some scripts, um, organising administrative tasks, that sort of thing. Um, and I did that for a couple of months. And then I got a job um, as a, I can't quite remember my title, but I think it was a legal administrator. Um, at a company called Fox Kids, which um, was, I can't quite remember what's happened to it now, if I'm honest, but it was a, a cartoon channel. It was a kid's cartoon channel. Yeah. And they did lots of merchandising and licensing and things like that of um, some, some sort of key kids' titles. Um, and I worked there as a legal assistant for about 18 months, actually. And I, that was my first, I guess, a, a formal experience in the legal department. Um, it was a small department. There were three qualified, uh, sorry, um, two qualified lawyers and then two qualified, um, two um, paralegals essentially. And I, I was just their administrator. So doing some, some really basic stuff to then as time went on, some bit more detailed stuff um, to sort of, you know, creating rights management databases, understanding the contracts, where we were granting our rights to whom for how long what we were reserving, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so very much like, you know, administrative data entry, but obviously had real um, um, exposure to lots of different types of legal agreements. And it was really during that time that I decided, actually, yeah, I do definitely want to be a lawyer. Um, my boss at the time also encouraged it, um, which was really good. Um, and that's when I decided to apply to do my graduate diploma in law which I then started probably the summer after um, in Chester College of Law, which I think maybe now has closed. Um, I heard, I'm not sure, or moved, I can't remember which. Yeah, I'm not sure, I have, I've just started looking at um, different places that do the GDL, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and then that, that was when I made a real sort of 
you know, proactive step into the legal world. So, um, you know, committing obviously money, but obviously time to, to doing the graduate diploma in law. And then obviously that was um, the second year was then followed by the LPC. So the vocational side of, side of it. And I did those two years consecutively. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's how I sort of made my, got round to making my decision. I suppose I just felt I needed a little bit of an exposure, that, that exposure to a legal department really sort of cemented that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I guess in turn, you know, that working at Fox Kids for a year and a half, and then previously for that film company, and both those roles on a purely administrative basis, that's when I sort of had started to get interested in the whole media and entertainment side of things. Um, and that really factored into my thinking when I was applying for law firms as well. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't quite as attracted to the magic circle law firms, um, possibly because I didn't think I could get in anyway. <laughs> um, I don't know, but um, I, I was definitely, I definitely wanted a smaller law firm. Um, the law firm that I went to, I think, it, it was about 100 people strong at the time, so it wasn't small, small, it's still quite quite big. And yeah. um, But their focus was very much on media and entertainment and sport. And and I was I, I knew I wanted to do that sort of work. So that's that's um, why I eventually moved to, um, got my training contract at Harbottom and Lewis, which was in Mayfair at the time in Hanover Square, but now moved to the Strand. Um, and... And yeah, and so so they um, yeah, that's why I ended up training for two years after I finished the LPC. Oh, and I suppose the second part of your question was around sport. Where how, at what point did I make the transition into sport? Wasn't it? Um, so Harbottles had a sports department. I actually didn't have. Um, I didn't sit in it. I didn't qualify into it. I didn't have a seat in it. Um, I my trainee seats were um uh oh gosh um, yeah employment um commercial corporate commercial litigation and um and i've forgotten oh oh i've forgotten the other um but anyway it was very much more commercial focused and um, commercial ip focused um the even with it obviously on the litigation side it was it was in around those topics too and i worked in hard bottles for three years post qualification as well still doing um i guess meet lot huge amounts of um commercial work and and then death and also branching out into data protection and and all those sort of areas but it was it was primarily for media and entertainment clients and then there was the odd dipping in and out of some you know doing some work for sports clients as and, as and when but again i wasn't really in the sports department um so i didn't really have any sort of specific sports law exposure um but i knew after a, after a couple of years there that i definitely wanted to work in-house um we obviously working for a firm like that you have huge exposure to um a whole range of other entities including you know lawyers from other law firms and lawyers from in-house um departments as well and i i, I realized quite 
quite soon on that I, it was in-house that I wanted to work rather than continuing to work in a law firm. So I started to look around and um, I was really, you know, I was, I was always interested in sports generally as a hobby. And my aim was to try and find a job where I had some, you know, genuine personal interest in the topic. Um, as, as well as actually one of the main drivers for me is I, I did want to work um, ideally for a company that had a charitable purpose as well. Yeah. Um, and, and ultimately, though, it's for all those reasons that I ended up at the RFU. Um, I did actually briefly, um, for just under a year, work for a, a, a small sports rights company, which was fantastic experience and um, very much on the commercial side. Um, but then the role at the RFU came up and I went for that. And that's why I moved across um, quite soon after leaving Harbottles. So, um, yeah, a bit of a no real plan, I have to say. It was no real structured thinking. It was more sort of a touch and feel approach, working out what I liked along the way and then pursuing that as and when I discovered it. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't one of these people who was, who was at 18 years old right, I want to be a sports lawyer. I, it is, that's not how, that's not how it came about for me. Funny, thank you. It's always very nice to hear people take a slightly unconventional route into law and didn't just do the law degree straight away. Um, as both me and Katie, that's what we're planning to do. Um, and yeah, definitely hearing about sports and media entertainment law, two areas of law that I haven't, I probably don't really know anything about, but they both sound very interesting. Yeah, and what I would say as well is, um, my journey is not that unique within the sports world. Lots of people have come from really different um, different paths. So, and, and that's really refreshing because it means that, yeah, we haven't all followed exactly the same sort of uniform step-by-step -step path to get to get to where we, we are. And um, and that's 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 really nice because it means you're sort of working with different people from all walks of life and yeah. Uh, just a slight different question, did you find that your previous job experience was helpful then when you sort of settled down into legal? Definitely. Yeah, so I think it was helpful for a few reasons, obviously because it gave me that exposure to an in-house legal department, um, but crucially also to the structures of, of an organisation. So lots of, you know, just understanding that actually in-house um and, and in law firms that you know there are lots of meetings and understanding the importance of how things are approved within those corporate structures is really important um and and, and on top of all that just having that office exposure um just purely on the administrative side of things knowing how office how how working in an environment like that works and you know really basic skills like back then it was well, using the photocopy machine, even faxing and all that sort of stuff, which you, which then stands you in good stead for everything that's to come. You know, those really fundamental basic skills that we all have to be exposed to and learn at some point. Um, so, yeah, invaluable experience, actually. Thank you. Um, so then for the next question, as I mentioned before, some uh, sports stories me and Katie know much about. And do you think that many people know what sport law or is about and what it involves working in that legal sector? Um, perhaps not. I mean, my, my view, and this is just a view, is um, sports law is not really a thing in itself. It, it's really just law within the sports industry. Okay. So it's just 
law that is specific to the industry of sport and in this and there there isn't law that is specific to sport really per se i mean i'll come on to chat about the, the regulatory side of things which where that where it definitely is more sport specific but but much of sports law when you think about it is actually um the it's commercial contracts it's it's all the data protection to protection side of things, the employment, you know, staging hire agreements, um, this buying and selling of things, um, services, software, products, whatever it might be. And it's just the client at the end that is different. So there's there's not a huge amount from a commercial perspective, from sort of the legal side of things that there is nuance necessarily to sports law, in my view. Um, that said, we um, so that's more on the sort of contractual side of things. There's obviously, you know, some legislation that's specific to sports. So obviously you'd have to sort of be aware of the statutory um, framework of, of sport and uh, because we operate within that. Um, but the regulatory side of things, so that's really the sort of the national governing body side of the sport that is, is crucially important to, to understand the landscape. Um, so all sports that have national governing body status will then have to have and will have um, regulatory structures that they work within. So, um, yeah, basically reams and reams of regulations that govern what participants can and cannot do. Um, and I can I can expand on that a bit later, if you like. Um, but that's where I think it's that regulatory side where it's very specific to sport. Um, and varies between sports as well in terms of the regulations that are in place and that apply to different sports so that that's where it's it's important to sort of if, if someone is interested in sports law it's important to read around the the regulatory side of things um, and to get an understanding of that and that landscape um, and then the commercial side of things the contractual side tends to be very similar to if you you know we're coming from a from car manufacturing, it wouldn't be too dissimilar from a contractual perspective. Um, I hope I haven't sort of minimised that too much, but, um, but, but that's just my view of, of sports law. It's not really a thing, it's just law within the sports industry. No, definitely, thank you. That was a very helpful explanation, sort of the two different sides of the law. Um, and then sort of, I suppose, related to what it's like working in the area of legal, what does an average day's work look like for you? Yeah, so, um, so ultimately the way we approach our role within the RFU is we're, we're very much a support function. Um, we, we are there to support the business and the reason I emphasise that is um, we do run some of our own strategies and um, projects and things like that, but in the main, we are playing that support role for the other departments within the business and the other departments. You, I, I won't name them all, but for example, um, community rugby is department in itself, professional rugby, HR, IT, stadium, commercial. So when you sort of look at those departments and sort of imagine the sort of work that might flow from them. Um, you know, IT, uh, the IT department, we have, we're supporting the IT department as well as the professional rugby department. So in the IT department, we'll be seeing procurement agreements, software licenses, um, data protection related work and all that side of things. HR, obviously, very similar. Um, 
consultancy agreements, the, the sort of the employee side of things. Um, and then stadium side, you know, down to cabling within the stadium or, um, you know, ground T's and C's, you know, what you can and can't do when you're a ticket holder in the environment, in the stadium environment. So then the more community focused side and, um, and the rugby focused side where it, it's supporting much of what they do, um, either from a legal perspective, because they need T's and C's, they need competition T's and C's, they need agreements to procure X, Y, and Z, um, or anything to do with stakeholder management, stakeholder agreements. Um, the, the sport works with huge number, a huge number of stakeholders. So there's lots of sort of contracts and relationships that are that underpin all of all of lots of contracts that underpin all of those relationships as well. And then on the regulatory side, we're ultimately um, a national governing body, so we have huge responsibility to to regulate the game. And um, a significant amount of our work is spent um, improving our regulations, reviewing them, advising upon them, um, investigating potential breaches, um, stopping potential breaches, and then event. And then if if those breaches are then um, end up in a hearing, it's sort of uh, it, it's that preparation for the hearing and and um, the advocacy side of things as well. So, yeah, a massive broad range of things. Um, and increasingly, just to end, I suppose, is um, we're ultimately a membership organisation. So we we work for the clubs and our constituent bodies, i.e. our council. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And they they require um, support from us too. So they will often will often be responding to club queries um, and or, or at least sort of signposting them in the right direction. Um, so yeah, a, a whole range of things. So really diverse, but makes... Um, Every day is different, yeah. and no one day is one day is ever the same. And actually, I've just I've just um, remembered as well, um, like many organisations, a huge amount of our time is spent at meetings. So we have quite a we have a pretty robust approval process. So any changes um, in regulations, in particular, that need to be made need to go through various committees. So there's a lot of preparation of meeting papers and presenting on meeting papers and proposals like that and taking it through the, the, the corporate approval process internally. Thank you, no, that sounds very interesting. Just a lot of different aspects to 
working within the RFU and I was just out of curiosity are hearings very common um, or does it seem to not get to that point? Yeah they can be very common so we have um, we have actually a discipline department which sits in the legal and governance department um, as do I and that that discipline department deals with on-field discipline so your red cards your sightings things that happen literally on the field as well as off-field um, regulatory breaches so example of an off-field regulatory breach is when um, an agent um, might might be found betting on rugby and that's forbidden or a player might be betting on rugby and that's forbidden or anything to do with sort of contracts, um, poaching of players, that sort of thing. Um, so the on-field hearings are pretty common, um, particularly when we, we have a full season, um, which obviously we haven't um, for some time, but we, we, we will have had hearings this, this season stemming from, from the Premiership. Um, and we will, I, in terms of figures, I'm not sure, but they, they are relatively high and quite surprisingly high. We also have, um, we give delegated authority to, uh, to the counties and to the local organising committees to, to run their own hearings. So uh, at certain levels, community levels of the game, they run their own hearings. So they, they will be happening pretty regularly as well. Thank you. That's, re that's really interesting. Um, and just slightly just on that, sorry, I'm getting a bit latched on. For the, the disciplinary, is that, is it ban bans from rugby? Sort of what's a sort of, or are they all completely different, the kind of measures that are reached? Yeah, so in our regulations, we have a number of powers, um, which, which basically um, give the disciplinary panels the ability to sanction. Um, there are, we, we also have some sanction guidelines in respect to certain breaches. Um, but also the panel has, um, in some cases, has the ability, what we call to sanction, at, where sanction is at large. So they can, they can decide whichever sanction they like, um, which can, you're right, include bans um, from playing. They're particularly, um, particularly common with on-field. Um, so we have regulation 19, which has a sanction table at the back of it, um, which flows down from our International Federation World Rugby, which, really stipulates what the duration of the ban will be okay. um, so that that's that that's pretty common um, and then for for other breaches you know there, there might be um, financial penalty there might be um, uh, some sort of suspended penalty whereby if they do it again the the, the sanction will kick in um, and yeah a number of other sanctions I mean sometimes we do encourage education as a, a more um, yeah, it was, it, it, for, for example, if there's a betting breach, we would definitely insist on some further education for that individual if from a betting awareness perspective. So there's a whole range of sanctions that would be available um, and including actually points deduction. Um, so that, that's really important um, in the league context where everyone's playing for points mm. and potentially for promotion where those points points are really important and so the deduction of points is is um has can be quite a strong disincentive to breach the regulations thank you very much it's very interesting it's like a feels like a whole another side of um rugby <laughs> i didn't really knew was around um yeah and just to flag on that we have all our judgments up on our website actually so if anyone did want to have a little rummage around in, in the spare time <laughs> 
over the summer, then um, yeah, they are up there. No, thank you very much. I'll, I'll have a look at them. Um, and so you mentioned earlier about how obviously you knew you wanted to work in-house. Um, and that leads to our next question. Uh, what do you think are the common misconceptions about being an in-house council? Um, I think I think one thing that might put people off um, or, or, or initially was my assumption is that you have to have come, you have to be going in-house with some sort of sports experience or um, sports law experience. And, and that's not, that is not my experience at all. And, and I say that from someone who has, who has come into sport without that um, sports law experience or even any meaningful sport experience in terms of play, me playing or anything like that. Um, and, and also, I say that from, from recruiting as well, um, we, we know that sports, sport is, is a very small world ultimately and um, if we are recruiting we tend we do really we do tend to know that it's really unlikely that you will get somebody with exactly the experience that you're looking for so um, so we do recruit outside of sport um, and there are you know huge huge number of industries particularly sort of in the regulatory sector who are far more advanced than sport in many ways and you know whether it's you know people who've had experience you know general medical council or in a, in a in um in other you know in other very well regulated environments um they that would be something that would be a skill set that we would really you know our ears would really prick up about that so um i, I would say that it, it's a misconception to think you have to have sports law experience to work in sport yeah. um that that's not the case and and we i know that from from doing recruitment ourselves that it's it's not a prerequisite we're just looking for the right individuals with experience that they could bring to us something that we can't already offer um and that's testament to the to the, the recent recruitment that we've we've done in the last few years actually like the the, the three individuals that i can think of didn't come from sport didn't come from sports with sports law backgrounds well, thank you. That's that's interesting. Um, a, a fair few that we've like previously interviewed have said that, yeah, it's very much like you can. And some people that we've interviewed have been in chambers and they've sort of specialised in one thing and then found themselves on a completely different case. So I suppose in some ways it's similar with sport that you don't necessarily need the. Surprise. Yeah, yeah. What I would say is, um, you know, going back to what I was saying about what the average day looks like, it's we are a jack of all trades. Um, particularly when it's a small legal department, you have to turn your hands at, at many things um, and also get comfortable with the unknown and, and doing things that perhaps you haven't done before. So, um, uh, and, and I think in that vein, I think when, when anyone is, you know, choosing their training contracts and where to specialise, um, I always, um, kept within that sort of broad commercial sphere um, which in which you would see everything and anything and wouldn't quite know and, and I didn't specialize too soon and you could you could say I've sort of specialized now but even now I would say you know that I'm still working on a number of multiple sort of contractual areas and commercial areas and um, IT, data protection, all that sort of, all those sorts of areas are still really, really wide, even though I'm now in a sports, sports role, I guess. Um, 
So that general that generalist um, approach can be quite helpful, um, but isn't again isn't a prerequisite of getting getting a job in sport. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. Um, so you sort of slightly touched on this earlier, but I was wondering, so would you say your work is mainly focused on grassroots, national, or like international rugby? Yeah, so it's all of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, I, I would say, in terms of weighting, it's um, the national and grassroots is um, takes up you know a significant amount of that weighting. International rugby is is run by World Rugby ultimately. So whilst they whilst we do work with them and and feed in feed into their regulatory structure and avoid proposals and respond to consultations and all that sort of thing in terms of the international tournaments and the running of them they run them so um so i, I guess it's a bit more of an 80 20 split um so the grassroots and the domestic professional um professional rugby game within within england is is where we focus most of our time is that just uh, is there a difference in guidelines um and possibly like restrictions between grassroots and national like i don't know if there's anything that's particularly um yeah there can be so the i suppose um there there are different there are some regulations that will apply across the board um and the unions themselves have these these would come down from world rugby and the unions themselves might in that regard have limited sort of scope to deviate too much from from those regulations um, but but that said where where there is the ability to deviate um, we will have more often more specific regulations in place um, and to give you an example um, we we have very detailed regulations on agents operating within rugby which goes, which which are more robust and goes beyond what our international federation has, um, because we as a we as a um, as a union chose that we wanted to go down that route about 10, 15, 10 20 years ago, I think it was, um, and so so there are some there is some alignment across the board, but there's also some deviations as well. But where, whereas the union we spend most of our time is on that domestic, the rugby that is being played in England, and that can be grassroots and professional rugby. Um, and, and that's where the majority of our resources are spent. Okay, thank you. That was sort of very clear understanding now. Um, and I've sort of how question this for I was quite interested in the guidelines aspect, but how far do your powers ex extend in enforcing guidelines within the RFU? Yeah, so guidelines, um, I suppose guidelines is, 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 is an interesting terminology because we, we in the RFU, we have guidelines um, and we have regulations and they are both diff very different. Um, and we also have other things such as code of conducts and protocols and um, sanctioning frameworks and a whole range of different terminology, which I think is quite typical of, of sports generally and I'm sure other industries. So, so just to sort of clarify, I think probably the question is, you know, what are our powers in, in pertaining to our regulations? Um, and I primarily sort of differentiate them um, from guidelines because when we use the term guidelines, they are guides, they are guidance, um, they're not mandatory, whereas our regulations are mandatory and, and that's where we have, that's where our powers, you know, sit. Um, 
So from a governing body perspective, we, we obviously have recognised national governing body status um, and, and, and ultimately our powers to regulate, to govern, are set out in our rules as an organisation. So we have our rules which um, uh, set out what, what specifically the powers of the RFU are. Uh, and where those powers sit and then those are those rules set out the sort of overarching powers really broad brush but the specifics are set out in our regulations so we have a whole suite of regulations that sit on our website which um which are broken down into various subject areas um from things like our betting regulations to anti-doping to our league, our league regulations agent regulations how you become a member of the rfu um clubs going insolvent uh, safeguarding regulations, player safety regulations, so a huge range of regulations and they are all mandatory so by, quite simply I mean it says you must do this um, and, and then separately we have a, a, a wide um, disciplinary regulation in the form of regulation 19 which sets out what our specific investi investigatory powers are um, what, and then what we mean by that is what if if we had a breach reported to us or if we suspected a breach how do we go about investigating that so there's powers to request info information there's powers um uh, that require clubs players participants to to um adhere to any requests that come from us there's audit there's the ability to audit there's the ability to insist on interviews with individuals there's um, there's the power to insist on participation in hearings. Um, there's also the sanctioning powers. And so there's a whole range of powers that sit within our regulations that enable us to, to investigate breaches if and when they are reported to us or if we, if, if we suspect a breach. Okay. No, thank you very much. That sort of, seems like this is just a whole range of different um, regulations and slightly on from that just I suppose uh I know a little bit about probably not in rugby but anti-doping and things how often would you say are they um updated a lot do, do the regulations change and is that through a process that the legal team's involved in yeah so we we run that process actually that's one of our key roles as um in in the legal and governance department is to to run the process of reviewing our regulations on an annual basis so we have a regulation review process, which we tend, our, our regulations come into force on the 1st of August and are in force for that entire season, that, that year. Um, and so in, in about January each season, we, we start to review our regulations, um, partly proactively to see if there's any changes we proactively want to make for next season, particularly in to reflect any key projects that are going on across the rest of the business where regulation changes are needed and then also reacting to any disciplinary cases that we might have had or investigations we might have had um, where there's some learnings um, from those cases that we think necessitate a change to regulation and on top of that if there has actually been a hearing our panel our panels can actually suggest that certain regulations get looked at and we would obviously then start that process at that stage as well. Um, and what that really looks like is it, it, it's, um, it's us putting together a matrix of changes under discussion and taking them to obviously discussing them internally with colleagues 
that need to input, but then taking them through the relevant committee approval process internally for, for feedback from, from, from those committees as well, and ultimately approval from our RFU council who approve all our regulations each season. So I'm assuming if, if then if they're like annually can be updated, do members have to sort of like re-sign things like code of conduct each year or is it, do they just agree? Um, I don't know if this makes sense, do they agree once and then if they're changed, do they just keep agreeing or do they have to re-sign something every time a regulation is changed? So no, not necessarily. They don't need to re-sign something. What, um, our regulations are always on our website. So the approach that we that's adopted is by participating in the sport, you are agreeing to those regulations. Now, for players, uh, for, for players who are playing in our league structure and have to sign a player registration form, there is a tick box which says, I will, you know, I agree to comply with all regulations, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And for other participants, we we have that, um, not all, but for some. So for example, agents have to renew each season and will you know, confirm that they agree to our regulations and there'll be a couple of other examples like that. Yeah. Um, but, for, but, but for other individuals who don't fall within those sort of specialist categories, um, we rely on that by, by, by participating in the sport, you are agreeing to adhere to our regulations, which are then in turn, you know, always visible on our website should, 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 should they wish to see them and the onus is on them to understand the, the regulations that apply in that sport. Okay, no, thank you very much. That, that's how we tend to get our jurisdiction usually. Yeah, I was, th I was thinking if it had to be sort of a signing thing, it would just be constantly people signing different <laughs> regulations. No. Yeah, it's just not possible with, with obviously the, the player base and the yeah. participation base. And by participants, I mean, I don't just mean players. I mean, the coaches, the volunteers, the you know all those other individuals that keep keep rugby going um yeah perfect thank you very much that's the that's my final question um that's it's been really interesting to learn a lot more about what it's like to work within the um, legal department of the rfu um and again insight into sports law and all the different areas that that covers so thank you and i'll just stop recording you're very welcome <laughs>
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.